0: So unfortunately, early cervical cancer doesn't have a lot of symptoms. Um, so that's why it's so important to get your screening. Um, cervical cancer, at, when it's early, um, like I said, doesn't have a lot of symptoms. And as it progresses through the different stages, so it goes from you know having your normal cervical cells. If you if you're exposed to HPV, then that can um, begin to alter the cells into what is called a precancer or a dysplasia. Um, And then uh, all the way into a cancer. Now, we think that this process of, um, you know, normal cell to dysplasia to precancer to cancer takes 10 years at least. Um, So, you know, there is time. But early in that, there aren't a lot of symptoms. So that's where screening comes in. Cervical cancer is the third
1: most common type of gynecologic cancer in the U.S., since September is Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month, we are replaying this popular episode of the Women's Health Cast featuring Dr. Summer Wallace. Dr. Wallace is a gynecologic oncologist in the UW Department of OBGYN. In this episode, she talks about what causes cervical cancer, how it's treated, and why the HPV vaccine and regular screenings are important tools to help prevent cervical cancer. If you're interested in learning more about and supporting gynecologic cancer research in Wisconsin, please join us for the 2021 Sparkle of Hope Gala on Friday, September 24th. You can learn more about the virtual event and how to register at SparkleofHope.org. From the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm Jackie Askins, and you're listening to the Women's HealthCast. September is Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month, and um, I'm interested in learning more about cervical cancer from Dr. Summer Wallace. Thank you for sitting down with me. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Before we get started uh, talking about cervical cancer, I'm really curious what brought you to the field of gynecologic oncology?
0: Yeah, so when I was in medical school, I um, I initially loved the field of GYN oncology because of the surgery. I was so impressed and intrigued by the surgeries that the, the physicians were performing. Um, I thought they were so fun and I couldn't imagine that I would ever do that. And as I kind of ventured through training um, with residency, I I clung to GYN oncology, but for different reasons. Um, the patient population is just a joy to work with, um, and the field challenges in different ways. So not only am I a surgeon, but I'm also watching and helping a patient navigate through, uh, their entire cancer journey from surgery to follow up to chemotherapy, um, sometimes some maintenance therapy and surveillance as well. So, um, I get to be there through it all and that's unique in medicine actually. So we're
1: talking today about cervical cancer. Um, How common is it in the realm of gynecologic cancers?
0: Yeah, so cervical cancer um, incidence or commonality is different in our country as opposed to the world. Um, Here in the United States, there's about 13,000 new cervical cancer diagnoses each year, um, which doesn't sound like a lot. And thankfully, it has gone down, uh, but still more than we'd like. Um, And it's it's the third cause of GYN malignancy in women. Um, however, in the world, the, the incidence is actually higher, and it's, um, it's the second leading cause of cancer in women in the world, which um, is because of decreased screening practices in certain, in, in certain areas of the world what causes cervical cancer? So we have learned a lot in the past, you know, decade or more about cervical cancer. And we now know that the human papillomavirus or HPV is the leading cause of cervical cancer uh, and in greater than 99% of cases. So uh, this is a virus that we all know about. And, you know, thankfully we are, we've learned a lot more about and have more to, more to come, but we're finding ways now to treat this that um, are specific to that. How do people acquire
1: HPV? How do we Mm -hmm. run into it?
0: Mm -hmm. So HPV is very common in our population. It is a sexually transmitted disease. Uh, It's not like chlamydia. It's not like herpes um, in that, you know, you can acquire it and you get Treated. Um, it is something that most of our population has been exposed to. 80 to 90% of us have been exposed to that if you've had more than one sexual partner.
1: Does HPV cause any other types of cancer besides cervical cancer?
0: Mm-hmm. It can, and that's similar, um, it's related. So HPV can cause cancers, you know, not only of the cervix, but of the vagina and the vulva as well, so in women. Um, but it can also cause cancers in men, so of uh, the the anus or um, penis, even in a man, and in the um, the the throat, uh, oral pharyngeal cancers can be caused by a human papillomavirus as well, both men and women. So you said
1: HPV is. Probably the cause of about ninety nine percent. That's the vast, mm-hmm. vast majority mm-hmm. of cases of cervical cancer. Is there anything else that contributes to developing cervical cancer?
0: Um, sure. So risk factors for cervical cancer. Um, it's not one of those cancers that is often genetically passed on. It's not something that we think of as being running in families. Like I said, most of it comes from HPV, and most of the risk factors come from. Things that increase your exposure, so increased sexual partners, um, risky behaviors, um, having had more sexually transmitted infections in the past, other reasons to be at increased risk are things that might reduce screening. So women might not have um, gotten their pap tests or been screened for cervical cancer as frequently if they live in a lower lower socioeconomic climate. So maybe they don't have great access to care, uh, which hinders their ability to get screened and therefore can be a risk factor for cervical cancer. there is disparity um, amongst different ethnicities. So being non-white um, is a disparity in our country and tends to be thought of as a risk factor. So you
1: said um, the vast majority of the population ends up exposed to HBV at some point mm-hmm. or another, so 80 to 90% of us with who are sexually active at all, I yeah. guess. Um, and, and yet cervical cancer incidence is much, much lower. So mm-hmm. are there different um, types of... I guess, are there different types of virus, or are some people more able to um, fight off the virus, mm-hmm. or some people have enduring of infections? What kind of changes that?
0: Great question, and kind of goes along with the last one. You know, there, another risk factor is immunosuppression. So, someone who has HIV um, or is on chronic immunosuppressants for different types of Um, medical reasons, such as having had a transplant or something like that, that could be considered a risk factor as well and can also contribute to the reason that um, some women have a harder time fighting this virus off. There are different strains of the HPV virus. Some of them have um, more aggressive behavior than others, and we tend to target those and and screen for those. Um, Some of them cause... What we commonly know of as genital warts, and we don't think of those as um, as as aggressive. They aren't thought of as causing cancer. Um, so, yes, you're right. Um, some of them can be more aggressive. Sometimes women, don't have the ability to fight off. um, If they're on certain medications, if they're immunosuppressed, smoking, for example, can be a reason that our immune system can't fight the virus off as well. Although it usually does, um, sometimes it doesn't, and we're stuck having to um, deal with that and and manage that as we can.
1: So let's talk about dealing with it and managing it. I guess mm-hmm. let's start from um, how does someone find out whether they have cervical cancer or pre precancer? Uh, mm-hmm. What kinds of screenings or tests
0: are there? Yeah. So the most common test that most people have probably heard of is the PAP test or the PAP smear, PAP and Nicolau, which is a screening test that we've used for years um, and has dramatically reduced the incidence of cervical cancer. It's been one of the most Um, amazing and um, medically important screening tests developed. Um, We take cells from the cervix, A pathologist looks at them and lets us know what abnormalities they see. Um, And from there we can go on to do biopsies, et cetera, if we needed to. Um, As we have learned more and now know more about HPV, we can now also perform HPV testing. Sometimes we do that uh, in you know, at the same time as a pap test. Um, and more and more, we're starting to look for HPV testing on its own as a possibility for a screening test for women. And that is that is what's um, likely coming and is already starting to be used in some instances.
1: When does somebody get these tests?
0: It varies. Um, so it varies for each test, and it varies for each woman. Most women, though, don't start getting pap tests or pap smears these days until age 21. Um, and most women now will, depending on age, be getting pap tests every three to five years, depending on uh, the findings. Now, of course, that can change if there's an abnormality. You're going to get testing or um, more confirmatory procedures done um, if there is an abnormality, but generally speaking, we start at age 21 and and get a pap um, or screening test every three to five years. So someone finds out, they, they get a screening or a test mm-hmm.
1: that um, th- then shows a result that they have a, a pre or something leading into cervical cancer. But are there any physical signs or symptoms that people should be on the lookout for that might suggest, oh, this is happening and it's time to maybe check in with your physician?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So unfortunately, early cervical cancer doesn't have a lot of symptoms. Um, so that's why it's so important to get your screening. Um Cervical cancer, uh, when it's early, um, like I said, doesn't have a lot of symptoms. And as it progresses through the different stages, so it goes from, you know, having your normal cervical cells. If, you've, if you're if you exposed to HPV, then that can um, begin to alter the cells into what is called a precancer cancer or a dysplasia. Um, and then and uh, all the way into a cancer. Now, we think that this process of um you know, normal cell to dysplasia to precancer to cancer takes 10 years at least. Um, so, you know, there is time, but early in that, there aren't a lot of symptoms. So that's where screening comes in. Um, later in that process, you can start to have symptoms. Those mostly consist of maybe some abnormal spotting, some bleeding after intercourse, for example. Um, some women might experience some abnormal discharge that's new or different for them that might prompt an exam. And as you get even farther into more advanced disease, you can start to actually see some changes in how women urinate or have bowel movements, or you know may note some pain or pressure in the pelvis as well. Um, sometimes even back pain if it can gets far enough to start to um, affect the kidney. So uh, screening, get your screening tests. <laughs> so what
1: happens after a pap test comes back showing some abnormalities. um, And so I suppose we'll follow up with biopsies and other sort of tissue tests. So what happens when those tests come back as positive for cervical cancer?
0: Mm -hmm. You're right. So depending on the abnormality, there are... um, certain abnormalities that we can watch and wait and say this usually regresses and goes away. Sometimes though we do move on and do what's called a colposcopy where we look at the cells closer with a microscope and different types of dyes um, and maybe perform a biopsy. If that biopsy came back as a cancer, um, then we would be talking about what is the next step as far as staging. And staging is starting to change a little bit actually. Um, Staging used to be done purely via um, an exam in the office and very limited other um, modalities, such as um, looking in the bladder or the rectum and using a like very specific type of imaging procedure. But that is now changing to be able to use mo- some of our more advanced um, imaging. The reason it was done like that in the past is because in other um, less developed countries, some of these resources aren't available, and we wanted to make the staging universal um, but like I said, that's changing, so we're able to use now some of our more advanced imaging. So finding a diagnosis on a biopsy means that we would perform further um, evaluation. So that means imaging studies, sometimes a PET CT scan or an MRI, um, or maybe we would do um, uh, a procedure in the operating room if, if we needed to, to get a bit more information, something like a cold knife colonization. But all of that would come after a really um, informative and in-depth exam in the office to get a good idea of where we're starting.
1: After staging, then... Well, what does staging tell us? Tell That's me a more. good
0: idea. Yeah, great question. So staging tells us... It, it helps us triage treatment. Um, and if it's okay with you, I'll just kind of get into that a little bit. I would love that. So... You know, once we have the larger specimen via a conization or we have imaging, that leads us to triage a patient to know if surgery is the right treatment or maybe chemotherapy and radiation is the right treatment. Um, Up to a certain stage in early cervical cancer, we do surgery, um, and that is to usually remove the cervix and the uterus, the fallopian tubes, sometimes the ovaries, um, but a a lot of times the ovaries can actually stay, And, and occasionally we evaluate the lymph nodes. Like I said, though, that is mostly in some of our earlier stages. Um, once we get to a more advanced stage, usually a, somewhere in the realm of a stage two, generally speaking, there are a lot of nuances there that we look for. Um, we start to wonder, um, or not wonder, but we start to think that likely radiation and chemotherapy are better, and that is because we've done a lot of studies in the you know in the past several years, decades to to let us know that doing radiation and chemotherapy is actually equal in effectiveness to to our surgery. Um, And it offers a patient less morbidity or less complications and life alterations. So doing a surgery and then giving treatment like radiation is very morbid. It can cause a lot of side effects. Um, And if we can minimize that with the same outcome, then that's optimal. So we'll do radiation a lot of times with some chemotherapy to help the radiation work better. Sometimes in more advanced stages, we'll do just chemotherapy.
1: So what happens if a, a younger patient presents with cervical cancer who um, maybe had plans to have a family, mm. was interested in having a family, <laughs> but the treatment plan would make that very difficult, especially if it includes uh, surgery? Um, yeah. What, what do you do in that, in that situation? That's a
0: great question. And you're right, cervical cancer does tend to be a little bit earlier in life compared to some of our other cancers like ovarian cancer. A lot of times we're seeing women between the ages of 45 and 50 um, and even younger. So, you know, the population that you're speaking of is are those women who are not ready to, to let go of their uterus. They've got more business. Um, and that's fine. There are certain, you know, we have very strict guidelines um, and there are certain instances when we can consider just a cold knife conization as a treatment. Um, What that means is that, you know, um, in the office we're taking biopsies to get a diagnosis. A cold knife conization is a procedure in the operating room where we take a much larger piece or much larger sample of the cervix, hopefully encompassing the entire cancer itself, um, which therefore in certain instances, especially in women who would like to keep their uterus, can be considered treatment. Um, for the time being. Other women who have maybe a, a bit more involvement or, or the cold knife colonization isn't um, sufficient, we can do something called a trachelectomy, which is where we remove the cervix itself, keeping the uterus in place. This does require a stitch at the bottom of the uterus, um, often called a cerclage the The word trachelectomy simply means removing the, cervi- removing the cervix. So that gives a woman the option of future childbearing, um, albeit with you know some complications and and um, a, a bit more um, involved OB care. But like I said, it's important to note that these are in sp- very specific instances. This isn't something that we can do for everyone with cervical cancer. Um, we have specific guidelines to say who and what um, types of cancer we can do that for, and it's a very personal conversation to be had between the physician and patient when when we're talking about that.
1: After after a treatment plan has been kind of worked through, what kind of follow-up or surveillance is recommended for patients?
0: Mm, Good question. So... um, After, you know, when a patient is completely done with treatment, we're often seeing women every three months in our clinic, Um, and many times that is actually um, involving other members of the cancer care as well, so for example, the radiation oncologist, so... um, here in our clinic, we'll often see a patient three months after they complete treatment, and then three months after that, she would see the radiation oncologist, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, that is so that everyone continues to be involved in care and that each specific aspect of the care is, is managed and taken care of appropriately. We really have that, you know, team based approach. Um, PAP tests are a little questionable after cervical cancer diagnosis and treatment. Radiation can alter our results, um, but it can be important for finding other um, dysplasias or changes in the vagina. So when we do a pap test, we're not often looking to say the cervical cancer has returned. We're often looking for dysplasias and abnormalities other in other places. And those are usually done once a year if, if they're done. One
1: of the big takeaways I feel like when I'm reading about cervical cancer is that in many ways it it is preventable. Mm -hmm. Um, So what are some of the ways that people can prevent or reduce their risk of developing
0: this kind of cancer? I'm so glad you asked that question. So there's two main ways we've talked about one already, which is to me, the secondary means of preventing cervical cancer and that's screening. So going in, having your doctor, seeing your doctor regularly, um, You know, we often advocate for seeing your gynecologist once a year for a pelvic exam. That doesn't always mean that you're getting a pap test, um, but certainly seeing your gynecologist or your primary doctor on enough of a regular basis to get screened, either via a pap test or an HPV test. Um, Now, the primary prevention is vaccination. Um, So HPV vaccination is... um, Uh, now widely available, widely recommended by gynecologists. Um, It is uh, just recently expanded to include up to ages 45. So both men and women can get this vaccine. It's recommended for, I guess I should say boys and girls, because it's actually recommended at ages around 11 or 12. Um, It's a series of vaccinations, but even just getting one of the shots has been shown to have some benefit. Of course, you're not getting the same benefit as getting the entire series, but um and it's already been shown to reduce high grade dysplasia rates um our vaccination rates in this country aren't as high as in others which is disappointing but that's okay we'll get there um for example in australia where their vaccination rates are greater than 70% they've they've really seen a dramatic reduction in their high grade dysplasia rates um and cervix cancer rates for that matter uh, and i anticipate that's how things would go here as they already are with even you know lower rates of vaccination so It's a safe vaccine. There's nothing else like it to prevent cancer, Um, multiple types of cancer and multiple different strains of the human papilloma virus. So earlier we talked about how there are a lot of varieties of Mm -hmm. HPV, many Mm -hmm. different strains.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, How helpful is the vaccine in covering that range?
0: Yeah, that is a great question. So the vax, there are, there is more than one vaccine available, actually. So, um, we have, ex- we, as we learn more, we expand on our vaccines. Um, there is now, um, a vaccine that covers nine different strains. There's one that covers four different strains, for example. Um, but we really have honed in and targeted the, um, highest risk. Strains for cervical cancer and high-risk dysplasias, such as 16 and 18. Um, uh, there are some other strains that are covered in the the nine-valent vaccine. Um, But, you know, these vaccines actually also cover some of the lower risk, like 6 and 11, uh, strain 6 and 11, that uh, actually cause genital warts. So, in addition to having cancer prevention, dysplasia um, prevention, we're also um, preventing other strains of HPV that might have a lower risk but still have implications for overall um, health.
1: I know that our our uptake rates for the HPV vaccine in the U.S. are not great. They're pretty low, especially compared to other vaccines that are recommended for mm-hmm. kids in the same age range. Mm-hmm. So do you have any takeaways or messages for parents whose kids are in that 9 to 11 range who are starting to think about, you know, whether to, to get this vaccine for their kids? Yeah,
0: I, I would ask them to think about it purely think about it and talk with your child's pediatrician um, talk with your gynecologist if you're a woman about it get as much information as you can you'll learn that this is a safe vaccine um, this is an important part of your child's uh, preventative health care in my opinion there's nothing like I said there's nothing else like this that will help prevent future procedures in the future future cancer diagnoses. You know, it's, it's hard. Everybody has their own personal, political, religious beliefs, and those definitely play into our decision-making and are important in our decision-making. So I would just implore um, parents to get as much information as they can to make the best decision for them. Um, I will say that when my daughter is of that age, I will without a doubt um, have her vaccinated, and hopefully she will want to and understand the importance of it. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. It was a
1: pleasure. The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can find the Women's Health Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us in your podcast app and let us know what health issues you'd like to learn about at the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening.